0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Well, again, we want to welcome all of you to our study of the three angels' messages. I've been praying about this uh, presentation this evening. It's, it's uh, somewhat of a tough one. But it's there. It's part of the three angels' messages. It's a message that needs to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Uh, it is a message that, yes, it does. it is a warning message, but the third angel's message is also a hope-filled message, and it's an encouraging message when you get to the end of this third angel's message. So I'm glad you are here, and we appreciate your prayers as we take a look at a very important and deep subject this evening. Now, we've been looking at the three angels' messages found in Revelation chapter 14. From our study so far, we've talked about the second coming of Christ. We've talked about the 144,000 who have the seal of God. They are the ones who are alive when Jesus comes again, and they are translated to heaven without seeing death. We spoke about true worship when we talked about the first angel's message of worshiping the Creator, the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Last night, we spoke about Babylon and the message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But now we come to the third angel's message, and the third angel's message is the most fearful warning that you can find anywhere in the Bible. It is God's final appeal to the inhabitants of earth in the final moments of earth's history calling people to make a decision for Bible truth. So it is a message that is powerful. It is a message that is convicting, but it's an important message. So let's take a look and see the third angel's message. And it starts in verse 9, Revelation 14, verse 9. It said, then a third angel followed them. The third angel's message forms the final part of this threefold proclamation of God's last warning to the world. The first angel calls for true worship. Remember the first angel's message? Fear God, giving glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship the Creator. The third angel's message warns about false worship. He says, if anyone worships the beast in his image or receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So the first angel is true worship. The third angel warns against false worship. So the critical issue in the end of time revolves around worship. Who do we worship? Now, what is it that the devil wants from us? What does the devil want from everyone? He doesn't want our money. He doesn't want our car or our house. But what the devil wants more than anything else is worship. After all, isn't that what he wanted in heaven? Wasn't Lucifer before the fall jealous because of the worship that was being given to the Son and to the Father? And he said, I want to be like the Most High. I want to receive some of that worship. So at the end of time, the devil is able to get the whole world to worship him, except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And he's going to do everything he can, even by force, to try and get the world to worship him. You know, that's the difference between God and Satan. Satan wants worship any way that he can get it, even if it's forced worship. But God will never force worship. Only with love is love awakened. The only kind of worship that God can accept is worship motivated by an appreciation and a love for God. So the issue at the end of time revolves around worship. And when we talk about worship, it's not only going to a particular church or praying, but worship in its deeper fullest sense is who do you obey? Who do you obey? You worship the one you obey when it comes to God. If you're gonna obey God, keep his commandments, you're gonna be worshiping him. If you're gonna worship the beast and keep the commandments of the beast power, you will be worshiping the beast, even though you might think that you're worshiping God. So the issue at the end of time revolves around worship, but it also revolves around obedience. Who are we going to obey? So, the next part of the verse here, it says, This angel, this third angel, is speaking with what kind of a voice? A loud voice. Now, you'll remember, this is a quick review. Remember, the first angel has a loud voice. The second angel just says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The third angel has a loud voice. And as we spoke last night, the three angels' messages represent three phases of the Advent movement. The first angel, in a special sense, represents the proclamation of the gospel. In the early days of the Adventist movement, when the message was loudly proclaimed, fear God giving glory, the hour of his judgment has come, worship the creator. And the third angel's message, even though we're going to be studying it this evening, we recognize that it has a special future application because nobody today has the mark of the beast. But the third angel talks about the mark of the beast, so it is something that is yet to reach its fullness in the future And then, of course, that puts us today, you might say, under the second angel's message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And as we mentioned last night, we understand that the church is spiritually lukewarm. And perhaps that's the reason why the message is not being proclaimed with a loud voice, because it's not a popular message. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But the message must be given, and tomorrow night, we're going to end on a very positive note because we're going to be talking about the fourth angel that we find in Revelation chapter 18. Now, the second angel, speaking with not a loud voice, representing the church, the Bible tells us that the church today is in a spiritually lukewarm condition. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, because you say, I'm rich and I've need or I've become wealthy and I've need of nothing— But you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says to us, he says to the church, I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire. Now what is that gold that Jesus wants us to have? Gold, in our understanding, is something very precious. What is it that Jesus wants to give us that is very precious? Precious in heaven's eyes. Well, we read by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and now abides faith, hope, and love or charity, but the greatest of these is love. You see, the Bible tells us God is love. The gold that Jesus wants to give us is the love of God in our hearts, you see. So the gold is love, it is faith. And Jesus says, Buy of me gold, refining the fire that you might be rich, and white raiment. What does this white raiment represent that Jesus wants us to buy? It's his character, imputed and imparted to us. So think of it this way. Christ's robe of righteousness placed over our shoulders covers our sins, but not only is Christ's robe of righteousness a covering for our sins, but it is also the cure for our sins. Not only do we find in Christ's righteousness our justification, but we also find in his righteousness our sanctification. So Christ's righteousness cleanses us from the outside and from the inside. And the third thing that Jesus tells us to buy from him, he says, and anoint your eyes with eye What do you suppose that I serve is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual discernment. You see, the problem with the church of Laodicea is they don't even realize their true spiritual condition. The Bible tells us it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And so we ought to pray for that and say, Lord, I find in my life a spiritual lukewarmness, but Father, I don't want to be spiritually lukewarm. Open my eyes, anoint my eyes that I might see Father, give me that gold, fill my heart with love, cover me with your robe of righteousness. All of that, incidentally, is a gift that comes from Jesus, even though it says, buy, even though Christ says, buy of me, what is the price to receive these things? The surrender of self. Giving ourselves to God, we receive the gifts that Jesus wants to give us. Okay, then moving on with our third angel's message. It says, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image. Now, beasts in Bible prophecy represent national governments and other ruling powers according to Daniel 7.23. The beast that the third angel is referring to is the first beast power that we read about in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 describes two beasts. The first beast comes up from the sea. The second beast comes up from the earth. Very significant. Well, let's see what the Bible says about this first beast. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now remember, Revelation is a symbolic book, and it's not for us to guess what these various symbols mean. The Bible tells us what these symbols mean. In Revelation chapter 17, we're told that the sea in Bible prophecy represents multitudes and nations and kindreds and tongues. And if you look in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel talks about four beasts rising up from the sea, those four kingdoms or four beasts, they arose around the Mediterranean, That was referred to as the Great Sea back in Bible times. And so when it's talking about the sea, it's talking about a power that would arise near or close to the Mediterranean, at least Europe, Western Europe, as we understand it from Daniel chapter 7, what these powers represent. Now notice some of the characteristics. It says this beast has seven heads and ten horns, and on his ten horns, sorry, he has crowns on his ten horns. And on his head's a blasphemous name. So how many horns does this power have? Ten. And what's on the ten horns? Crowns. We'll come back to that. Verse 2. It says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet was like a bear, and his mouth was like a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now where else do we read about a leopard, a bear, and a lion, and sort of a dragon-like beast? Well, we've got to go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. What's interesting here about verse 13, you'll find that it's kind of backwards to what we have the order in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it's a lion, and then it is a bear, then it is the leopard, then it is like the dragon. But here it starts with the leopard, the bear, and the lion. It's as if John, in vision, is looking back. So this political power that's been described here in Revelation chapter 13 has characteristics of Greece, of Medo-Persia, Of Babylon. The dragon-like creature here represents Rome in its pagan form. Of course, the dragon also represents the devil, but the devil is working through pagan Rome in trying to persecute and destroy Jesus. So this power would receive its throne and its authority from pagan Rome, or the dragon. The next verse tells us in verse 3, "...and I saw one of its heads as it was mortally wounded." And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Verse four, so they worshiped the dragon, they gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now a Hebrew month had 30 days. 42 times 30 is 1,260. One prophetic day is equal to one literal year. So this power would rule for 1,260 years. Then in verse 6 it says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. It was a persecuting power, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I want you to notice that the three angels' messages have to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's also interesting that the beast power at the end of time has authority or influence over every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So this is a global conflict, a global great controversy that is played out in the final moments of earth's history. And then looking at verse 8, it says, And all who dwell in the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the earth. So what's the key issue at the end of time? It's worship. Do we worship God and keep his commandments, or do we worship the beast and keep the commandments of the beast? Now, we don't have to guess as to the identity of who this power is. There is only one power, one power in the history of the earth that matches all of the characteristics given here in Revelation chapter 13. This is not the only place in the Bible where we have reference to this power. We also find this in Daniel chapter 7, as well as some other places in Revelation. So we're just going to look at six characteristics here that clearly identify who this power is. Number one, it arose from the sea. And here is a quote from a book called The Rise of the Medieval Church. It says, The removal of the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople in 330 left the Western church practically free from imperial power to develop its own form of organization. The Bishop of Rome, in the seat of the Caesars, was now the greatest man in the West and soon was forced to become the political as well as the spiritual head. So we see the Roman church filling a void when the Roman Empire was shifted its capital to Constantinople. The Bishop of Rome, eventually known as the Pope, took on political importance. Point number two, it says it had seven heads and ten horns. The Roman uh, Christian Church, this is again a quote from the rise of the medieval church. The Roman Christian Church was a church of worldwide importance and power, and her bishop, the most influential. Out of the ruins of political Rome arose a great moral empire in giant form of the Roman Church. In, a, in the marvelous rise of the Roman Church is seen in strong relief the majestic office of the Bishop of Rome. So we do see a power arising out of pagan Rome. Now, a beast in Bible prophecy represents a political power, and a woman in Bible prophecy represents a religious power. In Revelation chapter 13, when it's talking about the beast power, it's emphasizing the political side of the papal system. There is actually an independent country called the Vatican. It's the smallest country in the world, but one of the most influential countries in the world. So the Roman Catholic Church is not only a religious organization, it is very much a political organization. And what's emphasized here in Revelation 13 is the political side of the papacy, and in Revelation chapter 17, you have emphasized the religious side of the papacy. Because in Revelation 17, you have a woman riding upon the scarlet-colored beast. The woman represents the church. Okay, identifying point number three, it says, Upon its heads there are names of blasphemy. Now, we're just going to quote. This is from Catholic uh, sources. We have here the encyclical letter of Pope Leo Thirteenth. He says, We, the popes, hold upon the earth the place of God Almighty. Very bold statement. And then the Catechism of the Council of Trent says this, in all ages, priests have been held in the highest honor, yet the priests of the New Testament far exceed all others for the power of consecrating and offering the body and the blood of our Lord and of forgiving sins, which has been conferred on them. Not only has nothing equal or like it on earth, but even surpasses human reason and understanding. Now there's a good reason why the medieval church began to promote the idea that in the Mass. The wafer became the literal body of Jesus, and the wine became the literal blood of Christ, and your only hope of salvation was to partake of the bread and the wine in the mass in order to have salvation. And the idea behind that came from a misunderstanding of a statement that Jesus made. Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, right? And of course, this was a difficult statement for the people that were standing around Jesus, so much so that the Bible tells us many of those who followed Christ left him. And it was just Jesus and his disciples. And uh, Jesus said, are you also going to leave? And they said, Lord, where are we to go? You have the word of truth. But this is a hard saying. What do you mean, eat your flesh and drink your blood? Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit, they are life. The flesh profits nothing. So Jesus explained himself, and he said, I'm not talking about literally eating my flesh or drinking my blood. I'm talking about receiving my word, you see. But the medieval church liked the idea of somehow saying that in the bread and the wine, you're literally eating the flesh of Christ. You're literally drinking the blood of Christ. And the only way that you can have salvation is to come get the flesh and the blood, so to speak, at church or in mass. And so they held this over the populace. And people were afraid. If they didn't eat that bread and drink that blood, they had the idea that there was no hope for them to be saved. And this controlled Europe during the Dark Ages. Identifying point number four, its power, its seat, and its authorities from the dragon. We understand the dragon is the devil, but he also represents pagan Rome, the power through which the devil was working. It says, out of the ruins of political Rome arose a great moral empire in giant form, the Roman Church. Point number five, he receives a deadly wound, but the deadly wound is healed. Here is a statement coming from the San Francisco Chronicle. It's an old statement, but it's powerful. It was published Tuesday, February the 12th, 1929. It says, Mussolini and Gasperia uh, signed historic Roman pact, heal wound of many years. The Roman question tonight night was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. Notice it's the Vatican, that's the political component. The formal accomplishment of this uh, today was the exchange of signatures in the historic palace of St. John. In affixing the autographs to the memorable document, healing the wound which has festered since 1870, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. So the political power of the papacy, which would rule for 1260 years, in 1798, would receive a deadly wound, but the deadly wound would be healed, and that occurred in 1929. And since then, the Vatican, the political side of the church, has only grown in its influence around the world. The next identifying point, point number six, and there are many more, but I think six will just make the point that we need to make. It says he continued for 42 months, The papacy began its rule in 8538 when Justinian, the emperor, Roman emperor, decreed the pope as the head of all Christendom and the true and effective corrector of heretics. The papacy's rule continued for exactly 1,260 years and then right on schedule in 1798, Napoleon General Berthier marched into Rome and proclaimed the political rule of the papacy at an end and took the pope prisoner, The Vatican lost its papal states. It was no longer an independent nation, but that all changed in 1929. Now, of course, when we're talking about the beast power here in Revelation chapter 13, we need to recognize that we are not talking about individuals. You'll notice here in the slide that I have, it says, This prophecy is not speaking against individuals, for many Catholics love the Lord, and they're living up to all the truth that they have. Instead, the purpose of this prophecy is to expose a false religious system that Satan is using in the last days to deceive the world. Are you with me? That's why the three angels' messages have to be proclaimed with a loud voice. And the second angel's message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. According to Revelation 18, when it's proclaimed with a loud voice, a voice is heard from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. So God has got faithful children in every different type of church and denomination, but at the end of time, he's calling people out of religious confusion into the truths of the Word of God. And he's called us as Adventists to share these truths so that people can make their decision for Bible truth. Okay, moving on then. Still in verse 9, it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image... Now the first beast, the one that we just looked at, the papacy... Used secular or civil power to enforce her religious practices and beliefs. A power that would qualify as an image to the beast must, therefore do the same thing. Because of an increasing strife, crime and natural disasters, many will believe that America will be ruined unless Christianity is enforced. Now this is still something that is going to happen in the future. But if you look at Bible prophecy and what's happening in the world today, it's as if we can begin to see the handwriting on the wall. Things are beginning to fall in place. Things are beginning to come together. We can see agitation towards these things. Now, of course, Revelation chapter 13 not only talks about the first beast, the papacy, but it also talks about the second beast, the United States of America. And this is what it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. Speaking of the U.S., he says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now remember, the sea represents a densely populated area. It's related to Europe, the Mediterranean, areas around the Mediterranean. But here is another political power that is arising far away from Europe. It says it's coming up from a sparsely populated area. It's coming up In the earth or from the earth, it says he has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Now, what was on the top of the ten horns of the first beast? Remember I asked you that? Remember there were crowns. Notice that the second beast does not have crowns on his horns. In other words, this political power will be different from the political powers of Europe. It will not be a monarchy. It will not have a king. Horns in Bible prophecy represents rulership, Notice here that the two horns on this beast that comes from the earth doesn't have a crown. It's not a monarchy. It represents separation of church and state, freedom of religion, as well as not having a monarchy or a king, a representative form of government that began to be established when the first beast was receiving its deadly wound around 1798. Of course, the U.S. began to be established before that, but as the first beast was declining, the second beast was was rising. Verse 12 says, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Two things to note. The United States would have to become a world-dominating power. I remember I used to do these presentations when the Soviet Union, this is before 1989, when the Soviet Union was a serious contender to be the leading nation on the earth. Uh, We've kind of forgotten that. I remember at the time, the Soviet Union, they had a larger military than the United States. They had more soldiers. They were expanding down into Africa. They were expanding into parts of Asia. And for a while there, there was thoughts like, which power was going to be dominant? And I remember presenting this, and people would ask me and say, well, how can you say the United States is going to become the dominant force when look at what the Soviet Union's doing? And I'd point them to Revelation 12, verse 13 and 12, and say, no, according to the Bible, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, this is what's happened, right? Right? You can see prophecy being fulfilled. It says he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, meaning that the first beast, the papacy or the Vatican, would recover from that deadly wound and would go on to dominate and influence in the political realm. That's exactly where we are today. And it says, and he causes the earth and those who dwell therein to worship the first beast. Now this is something in the future. This has not happened yet, but the stage has been set. It says, whose deadly wound was healed. Now, here's a very profound statement that comes from the book, Last Day Events. And here is the statement. Last Day Events, page 135. Notice this. It says, when our nation in its legislative council shall enact laws to bind the consciences of men in regard to their religious privileges, enforcing Sunday observance and bringing oppressive power to bear against those who keep the seventh-day Sabbath, the law of God will, um, the law of God will, to all intents and purposes, be made void in our land, and national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. So here we are told about what is going to be taking place in the near future in the United States. The United States, as the world superpower, is going to take the lead in beginning to legislate certain principles of Christianity, but it could very well come under the guise of saving the planet. Things are beginning to come together. Movements from the Vatican, movements from the United Nations, movements in our own country towards some kind of a day of rest for the planet, and that's going to line up with what we as Adventists have been saying for more than 150 years. Well, it goes on in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. It says, and receives his mark. The issue in the last conflict again revolves around worship. That's the key. At the end of time, true Christians will be characterized as keeping the commandments of God and having the faith of Jesus. The mark of the beast is in opposition to the commandments of God and is a symbol of the beast's authority or the beast's power. Now, we don't have to guess as to what the mark of the beast is. The Bible makes it very clear. Let me just once again tell, tell you, make sure you understand, nobody today has the mark of the beast. But when certain legislation is being passed and people are being forced to make a decision between the commandments of God and the traditions of men, and they lay aside knowingly God's commandments to follow man-made tradition, then the mark of the beast becomes the issue. Are you with me? So this is stuff still happening in the future. Well, what does the Roman Catholic Church or the papacy claim as its mark of authority? Now, this is from their own writings, and they make it very clear. They don't want anyone to be in doubt. This is an abridgment of Christian doctrine. It's published by the Vatican, and it's in the question-and-answer format. Question, how prove you that the church has power to command feasts and holy days? Answer by the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of and therefore fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most uh, other feasts commanded by the same church. So they quite bold in saying, we are the ones that changed the day of worship from the seventh day to the first day, and that is a mark of our authority. And oh, by the way, you Protestants who say you go by the Bible and the Bible alone... Why are you keeping Sunday? It's our institution. Where in the Bible does it say that Sunday is the new Sabbath, you see? And so they're kind of pointing fingers at the Protestant churches and saying, you guys say that the Bible is supreme, but in this case you're following man-made tradition. You're following our tradition, the church's tradition. And here is another question. It says, have you any other way of proving that the church's power to institute festivals and precepts? Answer, had she not such power... She could have not substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. Now, at least you've got to acknowledge their honesty. They don't try to twist scripture around to somehow justify Sunday as the day of worship, they just come right out and say, Well, it's not in the Bible. But if you want to know why the Christian world worships on Sunday, it's because we changed the day. They just come right out and say that. And they say, that is the sign of our authority. Now here's probably one of the most profound statements they made. This is from the Catholic record, September 1, 1923. They just came right out and said, Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observances is proof of that fact. So there it is. They say, what power has the authority to change the day of worship? They say, we did, and even though the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, the fact that we did it and you all are following our tradition, you're acknowledging our authority, even if you claim not to be following us, you see. That's their argument. All right, well, the Bible is warning us about this in this third angel's message, It says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand. What does that mean? Well, this mark being in the hand or in the forehead indicates that one's labor, the hand, or one's belief, the forehead, are affected. The phrase designates two classes of people at the end of time. Those who submit to the decrees of the beast merely from practicality. In other words, they want to be able to buy and sell. And those who do so from personal conviction." I think the vast majority of the inhabitants of the earth are going to end up getting the mark of the beast in their hand. In other words, if you can't buy and sell, you'll probably go along with whatever you have to do in order to buy and sell. But there will be those who receive it in their forehead and they are convicted and believe that, no, this is what America needs. This is what the world needs. All of these natural disasters are taking place. There is stability in society. There are financial challenges looming. We have to bring America back to God, or we need to save the planet, however it comes across. And there will be those who really believe it, but I think the vast majority will just go along with it. That is, in essence, getting the mark in the hand. Verse 10, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. As I mentioned before, this this is the most fearful warning found anywhere in the Bible. And I think it's so significant because here we are now, friends, talking about the third angel's message before these things are going to take place. It's really going to be difficult to talk about these things after they begin to take place. Now is the time for us to know what the Bible teaches and to make our decision to stand on Bible truth. This is the future open to us through the Word of God. Those who drink the wine of Babylon's fornication that you read about in Revelation 14:8, as well as Revelation 17, will finally drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is the seven last plagues. So several things that have to take place now before Jesus comes. The first thing that begins to take place is there is a, uh, there is a stirring, there is an awakening that begins to happen around the world as it relates to, I believe, through the environmental movement as long, as well as the... The, uh, the movement within the various denominations and in the Christian world, a coming together, a uniting. And then with an increase of natural disasters and calamities and political strife, financial challenges, there's going to be a movement that begins to push towards some kind of a Sunday law, some kind of a day of rest. At the same time as we begin to see these things taking place in our nation, Those who have studied these things, that's you and I, will once again, like those um, ten virgins that were asleep until they heard, behold, the bridegroom comes, it says, then they trimmed their lamps, we will go back to the Word of God, we will earnestly study these things again, and we will plead for the Holy Spirit. That is the oil in the lamp. We're going to plead for the Holy Spirit. As a result of this coming together amongst God's people, earnestly praying for the Holy Spirit there is going to be a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church is going to be inspired by the the power of God. And as a result of that, you're going to have Revelation chapter 18, where the angel cries with a mighty strong voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That message goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. How long, how much time do we have after the latter rain is poured out and that message is given with a loud voice? The Bible doesn't tell us. But at some time after that proclamation, there are laws being passed that become more and more restrictive. At some point in time, Jesus finishes his high priestly ministry. When the warning has been given, Jesus finishes his high priestly ministry and he says, he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Probation closes and the seven last plagues begin to fall. Now, some people have wondered, well, how long is it when the seven last plagues are poured out? It's interesting to note that in Revelation chapter 18, it speaks of her plagues coming in one day. One prophetic day is equal to one literal year. I think that between the close of probation and the second coming of Christ, we're looking at roughly about a year when those seven last plagues are poured out. And if you look at what those seven last plagues are, you realize that it can't go on very long when those seven last plagues are being poured out. There'll be nobody left on the earth if they go too long. So you have the seven last plagues, and here the warning is, if anyone worships the beast or his image or receives his mark in his forehead in his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God. That is the seven last plagues poured out after probation closes then, of course, the final plague is actually the second coming of Christ. It's a plague to the wicked, and it's the blessed hope for the saved. And we are caught up to meet Jesus in the air. All right, verse 7. Talking about the seven last plagues. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven last, or the seven angels, the seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The seven last plagues is the wrath of God. Last part of verse 10, it says, And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. In the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Again, this is the most fearful warning. In addition to the seven last plagues that are poured out, the worshipers of the beast receive their final punishment at the end of the 1,000 years. You Remember that when Jesus comes, the righteous are caught up to meet Jesus in the air. The wicked are destroyed with the brightness of his coming. The righteous go to heaven for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. The redeemed are there in that city. The wicked are finally resurrected for the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, at the end of which they mount their attack upon the new Jerusalem. And the Bible says fire comes down and devours them. Matter of fact, here's the verse, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. It says, and when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be released from his prison, and he will go out and deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. That's the New Jerusalem. And it says, fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. Verse eleven. It says, "And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever." I told you this is a hard passage. It's the most fearful warning. In other words, God is saying, "Don't worship the beast. Don't receive his mark. Don't don't worship the image of the beast." God says, "Please, I'm warning you." It says, "The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever." What does that mean? Well, the figure of smoke ascending forever is drawn from Isaiah chapter 34 verse 10 where the smoke of Edom's destruction is described as ascending forever. Now, please understand me. The fire that destroys the wicked does not burn the wicked forever. But the consequences of the fire, which is smoke, the consequences of this fire is forever. In other words, there is no resurrection after the wicked are finally destroyed. That's it. So the consequence of the fire is eternal not the fire itself. Does that make sense with everybody? Okay, now there's many verses that tell us that. If you look here, we have a number of them. In other words, the result of the destruction of the wicked is forever. There are many verses, but I'm just going to look at two of them. Psalm 37, verse 20, it says, But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The Bible makes it pretty clear. So the wicked don't keep living in the fires of hell throughout eternity. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, the Bible says, saith the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And then the last part of this verse is also a difficult part. It says, And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Now, the final destruction of the wicked, each person is rewarded according to their works. The duration of punishment before death will not be the same for everyone. There will probably be those who will just vanish away. But there are others, like Satan, Satan, Satan himself, who will probably suffer the longest because of all of the evil and all of the pain and all of the suffering that he has brought upon the earth. And this is, of course, what Jesus talks about. Luke chapter 12, verse 47, it says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. So there are degrees in the rewards that are actually given to the wicked. Now here's a statement that we find in the book Great Controversy that I think explains this. 673. Some are destroyed as in a moment, while others suffer many days. All are punished according to their deeds. The sins of the righteous have been transferred to Satan. He is made to suffer not only for his own rebellion, but for all the sins which he has caused God's people to commit. His punishment is to be far greater that than those whom he has deceived. So ultimately, the devil bears the consequences for all the sins that he has committed people, at least the righteous, to do. Now, of course, we also see this illustrated in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats, and they would cast lots. The one would be called the Lord's goat. That would be the one that would be sacrificed, the blood of which would be taken into the sanctuary and into the most holy place. And then the high priest would come out of the sanctuary, and the second goat, which is called the scapegoat or azazel, the priest would come and he would lay his hands on the scapegoat. The scapegoat would not be sacrificed, but he would be taken outside of the camp into the wilderness. And here's the verse. It says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, that's the scapegoat, confess over it the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Here the scapegoat represents the devil. At the very end of time, those who are saved, the devil ultimately pay the punishment for the part that he played in their transgression. And then Leviticus chapter 16, finishing it up, it says, The goat shall bear on himself all the iniquities to the uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Okay, verse 12. Whew. We made it through the tough part. We end on a positive note. There's good news in the third angel's message. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. The word their patience, is the endurance of the saints. Every attempt will be made to force the remnant to join the movement promoted by the beast, including the threat of boycott and even death. At the same time, Satan will work with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, making it appear that the power of God is manifest in this movement. Through all of this, the faithful remnants steadfastly endure and maintain their integrity to God. They stand true on the word of God. Revelation chapter 13, 16, 17, it says, And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, that no one might buy or sell except he who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this is going to be a worldwide movement. And you can see how easily this can happen even today. Is it possible for the government right now to stop you from buying and selling? You know, I don't know when last I actually used cash in buying something. It's so convenient. You just swipe your card and there it is, taken out of your bank and goes to wherever it needs to go. And my paycheck, I I never get a check that I deposit for my pay. It's it's just electronic deposit that comes into my bank. How easy it would be for the government to freeze anybody's account. And does the government do that from time to time? Yes. And uh, sometimes it has very good reason because it has concerns about the things happening. So, so, you know, we're not saying that's all bad, but we can see how easy it's going to be to enforce what the Bible says. A hundred years ago, somebody might say, well, how in the world can the government control buying and selling of individuals? Well, now we know how. And this is not only buying and selling of individuals, but even countries, even trade between countries. You know the role that the United States plays in putting sanctions on countries that are not going along with the worldwide agenda, it's easy for the United States to do that, and that will only increase. So the stage is being set for what the Bible says. Revelation fourteen twelve. here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Led captive by Satan's delusion, the world will bow to the beast and its image and carry out its dictates and its decrees. The saints, on the other hand, refuse to comply with their demands The peculiar point of controversy at the end is going to revolve around worship, in particular, the fourth commandment or the Sabbath. It says they have the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus and keeping the commandments represent two essential aspects of God's people in the last days. The faith of Jesus allows Christ to live out his life within the believer, and the Ten Commandments define our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two. Or it says, there is no other commandment greater than these. And in the other gospel, it says, upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So notice, love to God, love to our fellow man, that's the motivation for the Ten Commandments. So for us to set aside one of God's commandments to follow man-made tradition, we are saying, God, I love this more than I love you. you understand the issue at the end? It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of loyalty. It's an issue of love. Some 600 years before Christ, three young men were standing on a plane called Dura. They heard the sound of the music and they had to make a decision you see the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up this great golden image and he commanded everyone in his realm at the sound of the music to bow down and worship this golden image because in worshiping the image they were really worshiping the king at the end of time there is a coalition of powers and they're gonna force people to acknowledge or worship this power And in worshiping the power, they're actually worshiping the one behind the power. You know what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to get the whole world to worship him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to make a decision. The decision was, do we go along with popular opinion? Do we go along with the crowd? Do we make excuses and say, well, God understands. I mean, after all, what good can I be if I'm dead? I can't be a witness. (laughs) They could have rationalized. But they realized there was a question of loyalty. Were they going to be faithful and obey God and stand up for Him? Or were they going to go along with the king and with the image that he had set up? You see, they made their decision. Their decision was made before they even came to the plain of Dura. They had settled it in their heart. They had purposed in their heart that they were going to choose God whatever the cost. And Finally, when the music came and everyone bowed and they stood firm, and the king commanded to have them brought before him. And I like their response. They say, King, we are not afraid to answer you in this matter. They had the peace of God in their hearts. They knew they were doing what God wanted them to do. And it said, The God that we serve is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace. Oh, that made the king mad. <laughs> Our God can deliver us from your fiery furnace, but even if he does not deliver us, let it be known to you, o King, we're not going to bow down to your image. Our loyalty is to a king far greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Our loyalty, friend, is to a power far greater than the powers of this earth. Amen. Our loyalty is to our King Jesus, and Jesus is coming again, and He's coming to get those who are standing for Him, those that love Him, those that give their heart to Jesus. I heard a story not too long ago about a young Adventist pastor in Zimbabwe. He was in a remote area of the country, and he was working in some of the villages, different areas. And there was some political unrest amongst different groups, different tribes in this particular area. And the village where he was living, the chief of that village said, on pains of death, no one is allowed to leave the village. I guess he was concerned about losing some influence over his people. But he made this law and he said, you can't leave the village. Well, this young Adventist pastor had already set up some revival meetings in a nearby village and everything was set up. And the people wanted him to come, and he didn't quite know what to do. Does he obey the chief, or does he obey the commander-in-chief? Does he obey Jesus? So he prayed about it and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he just felt convicted that, that he needed to go. And so, sure enough, he, he left the village, and he walked to the other, the other village, and uh, he preached. The Lord blessed the wonderful revival at the meeting. But after he was done, he walked back to his village, and as he entered into his village, he sensed that something was wrong. He went over to his house where he was staying. It was one of these typical uh, huts that was so prevalent there in the villages. And his wife and little son, they weren't there. They had left. They had actually gone to her parents' house because of the threats that um, the leaders in the village had given them. But he went to his hut, and of course his wife and son were gone, but the leaders of the village, they were there. And the chief, wanting to make a point, make an example of this young Adventist pastor, um, in front of everybody, he said, because you refuse to do what we told you to do, we're going to put you to death. And they took him into his hut, into his house, and they tied his arms behind a center pole that goes in the center of the hut, holding up the thatch roof. And then all of the villagers, at least the leaders of the villagers, gathered around and placed wood around the outside of the hut, and they set it on fire. And here this Adventist pastor was standing in the midst of his tent, beginning to feel the heat. And, of course, what's he doing? He's praying, saying, Lord, I'm doing whatever you want. Lord, I'm yours. I surrender myself to you. Well, the village is standing outside the hut, and finally, they watch as the flames jump onto the roof and the roof burns and collapses in on the house and the walls begin to fall down. And they, of course, think, well, this is the end. Uh, you know, this guy's gone. But it's too hot for them to really dig around in the coals. Their goal is to wait until the morning, because this happened in the evening. They wanted to wait till the morning, come back to the hut and kind of dig around and find his bones and put his bones on display as a witness to the whole village saying, this is what happens if you disobey us. And so they all went home, but... Later that evening, his wife, who was over at her family's house, around midnight, they heard knocking at the door. They opened the door, and to their amazement, there was this young Adventist pastor standing at the door, and they had heard what had happened. They were amazed that he was there, and they said, you know, we thought you were destroyed in the fire. So Why are you here? He told an incredible story. He said, while he was standing there, his arms tied behind his back, praying, saying, Lord, I'm choosing you. I'm standing up for you. He began to feel the heat. And stepping through the heat was an angel, tall, dressed in white. And he came and he shielded the faithful young preacher, loosed the ropes around his hands, and carried him out of that burning building. You can imagine the surprise of the villagers and the chief in the morning when everybody went to gather around this guy's house to look for his bones and who would show up but the man himself. Telling them that my God delivered me from your fiery flame. What an impact that made on that village. The chief had to acknowledge that there is a power higher than him. And that power is God. Yes, there are still today faithful Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up for Bible truth. And God is calling for an army of people today we will make Jesus first. We'll say, Lord, we will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. Amen. Is that your desire? Not by might, nor by power, but by thy spirit, saith the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Father, we are grateful for your word. We understand this is a sobering message, the third angel's message, but we see it's a message of love, for you don't want anyone, anyone to miss out on the opportunity of making that stand for you. Father, we look at ourselves and we are so weak and we think, Lord, how could we ever stand? But, Lord, we recognize that you will give us the grace that's needed to meet every emergency that comes along so long as we keep trusting in you. So, Father, tonight we commit ourselves into your keeping. We ask for your Spirit to come and fill our hearts and minds. And, Father, we want to be amongst those who light the world with your glory and cry mightily your last warning message. Thank you, Father, for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we commit ourselves to your keeping. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.